have to pardon me this morning. I've got a preemptive cough drop in my mouth that I'm still finishing up, so I apologize if you hear that <clears throat> clinging around a little bit. Um, middle of the 13th century, there was what ended up coming to be known as the Seventh of the Eight Crusades. Those were fought in the Middle Ages. The Seventh Crusade specifically was led by the King of France, and this was King Louis IX. Now, it was a war that saw the Crusaders defeated by the Muslim armies uh, in Egypt. And the war actually ended with, with what is known as the Battle of Farisker in 1250, and Louis IX was captured and imprisoned during that battle. Now, back home, Louis IX's queen, Margaret of Provence, she, out of her concern for her husband, began this ritual where she would, um, and again, as legend has it, she picked daisy petals while praying for his safe return. And some say that, that she believed at least somewhat in the prophetic nature of these uh, daisy petals being plucked from the flower. And again, tradition has it that this action by Queen Margaret led to the game of what was it's a game of French origin where one person seeks to determine whether another person returns the 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 affection that is shown toward them right and you pick daisy petals off one by one and we know how this goes right and I've got one here so we can play a little bit so right he loves me he loves me not he loves me. Oh, he loves me not. Got to make sure this is official. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. Loves me not. And you just keep going. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. Loves me not. There's more on here than I thought there were. <laughs> he loves me. He loves me not. You can tell how often I play this game. <laughs> Loves me, loves me not. He loves me, loves me not. The suspense is building, though. So, <laughs> he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, loves me not. He loves me, loves me not. Loves me, loves me not. We're getting down to crunch time here. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, loves me not. He loves me, loves me not. That's a bummer. I mean, we've, we've heard that game before, right? Maybe kids will, will play that, that game out in the schoolyard or something like that or, or home in the backyard. And maybe a young boy or girl might, might actually follow the leading of the daisy petals and either approach the person that, that they have a crush on or not, you know. Now, while the, while the daisy flower it can't truly tell us whether or not a, another person loves us, I think the game does highlight something about us as human beings. I don't think there's a person alive who doesn't desire to know whether or not they are loved. Right? We all have that desire to know that we are loved. 
deep within ourselves, we have that desire not just to know, but to be loved, to be truly, deeply, authentically loved. Now, I would suggest this is a part of what it means to be created in the image of God. Now, before anything else existed, all right, before God created anything, before he created humans, before he created the universe, God existed in the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And what permeated the relationships within the Trinity was, and, and still is, love. In fact, when, when Jesus walked the earth, we see this all over the place as he talks about his relationship with the Father multiple times. He says that the Father loves him. When the voice of the, spot of the Father spoke at Jesus' baptism, at his transfiguration, he stated that Jesus was his beloved son. But it's not just that love exists between the persons of the Trinity. John speaks of God and love in an even more fundamental way than that. So if you would, if you would look with me, we're in, going to be in 1 John chapter 4 this morning. We've talked these last few weeks about the statement, God is light, focused on what that means about God's character, what it, what it uh, means for us in our lives. And, and because the title of the sermon series is God is Light and Love, you probably guess the next of John's statements that we are turning to this morning. So if you're in 1 John chapter 4, it's, uh, it's page 1023 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow there. Look with me at verse 8, what John writes there. 1 John 4, 8. It says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is love. Now, when we, when we talked about light, when we talked about the statement, God is light, talked about the metaphor of light and darkness and how that, that represents the distinction between good and evil, truth, falsehood. When it comes to the statement, God is love, we're no longer working with a metaphor. We were with God is light. With God is love, it's not a metaphor. It's not as if the word love is pointing our attention to something else. <clears throat> when John says God is love, he means that God is love. And it's not just that love is one of the ways in which God relates to us. God is love. If you looked up the word love in the dictionary, really all that's needed is a one-word definition. You could just write God, and that would be sufficient. God is love. Real love is defined by the ways in which God interacts with other beings, the other persons of the Trinity, but also with us as human beings. It's not just that God does some loving things in our lives. Everything that God does is permeated, it's saturated by his love, every bit of it. Now, I, you know, we can get real honest real fast this morning. 
There's part of me that struggles with that, right? I think all of us, if we're speaking honestly, would say something along those lines, right? There's things I've experienced in my own life, things I've watched in other people's lives that leave me with lots of questions about God's love. If God is love and and everything that he does is saturated with love, well then, how is it loving when I went through blank, you know? How is it loving when blank was taken from me? How is it loving when blank happened in the world? I mean, we have, if we're honest, we have those questions. The Bible contains a number of examples of people who faced hardship, faced suffering in their life, and pondered God's love. And, and you know, the, the most famous, the most often referenced is Job, isn't it? You know, Job faced terrible turmoil in his life. God allowed Job's wealth to be taken from him, his children to be taken from him, his health to be taken from him. And throughout the book, Job and his three friends try to make sense of what God is doing. But they don't get anywhere. They don't. The friends continually accuse Job. Job continually claims innocence before them. But then you get to chapter 32. In chapters 32 through 37, there's another man who speaks up. There's this guy named Elihu who had listened to all that had been taking place, this discussion back and forth between Job and his three friends. But the text says that, that Elihu burned with anger at what he heard. He hadn't spoken up to that point because he was the young guy in the room, but finally he did, and and I think he actually showed that he was also the wise one in the room as, as he speaks. And so over the course of those six chapters, Elihu essentially says that what has taken place was for two reasons. He says, one, Job, initially the losses in your life, combined with your response, showed the great value and the great glory of God. God's glory was on full display in your life, Job. And then two, Job, as, as, as the pain went on, God used it to expose pride in your life. Now, that's how Elihu responds to all that had been taking place with Job and his friends. And then immediately after Elihu speaks, God shows up in chapter 38, and God speaks his peace. Except when he does, God isn't responding to Elihu. He's not putting Elihu in his place, saying, no, Elihu, you don't have it figured out. Instead, God answers Job and puts Job in his place. And for the next four chapters, God asks question after question and essentially tells Job that, Job, you just, you know so little about, about how the world functions in general. You know, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? I mean, God makes it clear who, who is powerful, who is sovereign. In the midst of Job's lack of understanding, God's purposes are fulfilled in all things. And I came across uh, uh, John Piper was speaking about, uh, about this situation, and he said it this way, and it was so good. He said, therefore, Job should not presume to accuse God of being arbitrary or capricious, or rational. He should submit to the wisdom and goodness of God's dealings and hold fast to the promise that God withholds no good from those who walk uprightly. 
I mean, there will be, there are times in our lives where understanding God's purposes, where we just, we don't. We don't understand them. We don't feel loved by God. I mean, Job felt that way, and and he ended up repenting of his prideful attitude. He came to understand that he he wasn't able to understand God's ways. And in, in essence, he was left with the decision, right? In the lack of my understanding, will I trust God or won't I? When I don't feel like God's love, when I don't feel like God loves me, will I trust that he does or won't I? And, you know, I, I think we, we can be left with that same decision in our own lives. Maybe our children didn't all die in a house collapsing on them like Job. Maybe our possessions weren't taken away. Maybe our body wasn't struck with sores from the sole of our feet to the crown of our head. Or, or maybe it was. Whatever it is that we face, we're faced with deciding whether or not we believe that God loves us even when we are in the midst of suffering. The good news this morning is that we can know. We can know with certainty that God loves us. And the good news is it doesn't involve pulling petals off of a daisy either and hoping that it ends well. God has clearly revealed to you and to me his love for us. He doesn't, he doesn't leave us needing to have blind faith. He has made it plain that he loves us. The Bible records many specific ways in which God shows his love to humans, which makes sense because he is love, so we ought to see that love being poured out all over the place. So, so if we start with the Old Testament, I'm just going to highlight some of the ways that God's love is clearly seen. First thing is, is we see God's love in his election of his people. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, a man named Abram doesn't say he was out in the field. I always picture him out in the field doing his thing. And, and God, God speaks to him and tells him, okay, Abram, pack up your things, take your family, and just go. I'll tell you when you get there. Just go. And God didn't unfold his entire plan in that moment, but, but he was choosing Abraham to make him into a nation of people through whom he would save the world. And that promise, that choosing, extended down through the generations who came after Abram. And so, so listen to what God said to one of those future generations. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 10. As that generation was preparing to enter into the promised land. It says this, Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong the heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like God just played eeny, meeny, miny, mo and, okay, Abram, he's the one that got chosen. It wasn't that, it wasn't, Abram wasn't the cream of the crop out of everybody on earth. It wasn't that. God set his heart of love on Abram and on Isaac and on Jacob and, and all those who came after them. God loved them 
and called them his own. And that's one of the ways that we see God's love poured out, see it, dis- see it displayed, is through his election, his calling of his people. We also see it in his protection of his people. You know, from the outset, the people that he chose were vulnerable. They needed protecting, right? Abram became a refugee in Egypt due to famine. Isaac feared for his life when he settled in Gerar. Uh, Jacob drew the ire of his older brother Esau. Joseph drew the ire of his ten older brothers. Uh, The nation of Jews, the whole nation, they were enslaved in Egypt and then they were pursued by Pharaoh on their release. You look at the time of the judges, right? The nations surrounding Israel oppressed them. Even the mighty king David was pursued by Saul, who sought his life. And when we think about David specifically, his fleeing from Saul, he wrote these words in Psalm, uh, Psalm 57. And these, these words, they, they speak to God's work in David's life specifically, but these words also speak to God's protection for all those who came after Uh, who came before David and after David. So in Psalm 57, verse 1, this is what he writes. He says, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. A shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. <clears throat> so when God described, or when David described God's steadfast love, that being poured out upon him, he speaks of it in terms of God's protection. His ability to, to take refuge in the shadow of God's wings is a display of God's love for him. So we see it there too. God's love is seen in his provision for his people. And again, there's so many examples of this across the Bible. God providing food in the midst of famine, providing children to those who are barren, God providing land in which to live. But I want to focus this morning on on a powerful picture of God's provision for his people as a whole. And, And this comes from Ezekiel chapter 16. God's people are pictured here as a, as a vulnerable young woman cast out into the field. And listen to, the, listen to what happens when God metaphorically walks by. Listen to what he says, Ezekiel 16, verse 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen, covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and chains on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. 
You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Now, obviously, it's all metaphorical, right? The people of Israel are not really a lone woman who God clothes with all of those things. But the picture is of God lovingly receiving his people and and blessing them in incredible ways, providing for them. The woman grew in splendor, it says, because of what God provided for her. Now that story goes on in heartbreaking fashion to to speak about how the woman, how, how God's people rejected him. They took the very things God gave to them and and utilized them to sin. But the reality remained that God abundantly provided for the one that he loved. He provided for his people. So we see his love there. We, we see his love in his direction for his people as well. Again, so many examples of this. But, but I want to focus on, on the song that Moses sang in Exodus chapter 15. You know, whatever joy the people had at escaping Egypt was pretty short-lived because once they realized that, that Pharaoh and his army were now pursuing them, the people responded in fear and they accused Moses and, and by extension accused God of bringing them into the wilderness to die. I mean, that, that's not a very hope-filled, joy-filled sounding statement. I mean, after all, they, they'd simply been following God, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud that went before them. They followed like they were supposed to do, and by doing so, God had led them not only out into the wilderness, but to a place where they were penned in. They had the Red Sea right in front of them. They had Pharaoh's army bearing down behind them. What could they do? They were there because God led them there. Well, you know the story, Right? God miraculously parts the waters of the sea, provides a way through. And then once they're on the other side and Pharaoh's army lie dead at the bottom of the sea, Moses led the people in worship of God through song. And I want, I want us to listen to one of the lines of the song. This is Exodus 15, verse 13. It says, you have led in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And Moses rightly recognized that it was in love that God led them to the place in the desert where they assumed they were trapped. I mean, that's what they thought. They looked around, Red Sea in front, Pharaoh's army behind, God, I don't feel very loved. And Moses said, no, no, no. You may not understand when you're right there looking at the sea, looking at at the army, but God led you in his love. It didn't, that did not change, right? Just because they couldn't understand in that moment what God was doing, the reality of his love did not change. It remained for them. Now, Moses wrote this song afterwards, a little, a little easier to see and proclaim God's love, again, when the sea had already been parted and they'd walked through, but in love, God had led them to the place where it all seemed hopeless. And then finally, we see God's love in his compassion on his people. 
book of Nehemiah, we have God's people who've returned from exile. Um, They've gathered in Jerusalem. The book of the law was being read to them. And in the midst of all that, the, the people were reminded of their ancestors. They were reminded of their ancestors who were set free from Egypt and powerly, powerfully led through the Red Sea. They were reminded that they were given God's commands at Mount Sinai. But they weren't just reminded of God's past actions. As the book was read uh, to them, they were reminded of their own ancestors' actions as well. So in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 16, we get some of that reminder. It says, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the words that you perform, uh, the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. So even after all God had done for his people, they they still stiffened their necks, they rejected God, they, they wanted to go back to slavery. But God, abounding in steadfast love, responded compassionately to them. I mean, even when the people created a golden calf to worship while they were at Mount Sinai, I mean, they essentially cheated on God at their wedding ceremony, if you think about it. That's incredible. God still did not forsake them. God's compassion toward his sinful people is a display of his love. Those are some pretty incredible displays when you think about it, isn't it? His calling, his protection, his provision, his leading, his compassion, that, that is incredible. And yet, all of that, even put it all together, they're partial and incomplete displays of his love. Now, I, I would say if that was the extent of God's love, I think he would still be worthy of our worship. If that's all we had to go off of, he'd still be worthy of worship. But there's more. There's more. There is a complete and there is a full display of God's love, which also encapsulates everything that we just talked about. And when John says that God is love and he seeks to prove beyond all doubt that God loves us, he points to one single thing. He says, I I can tell you one thing that proves it. So let's turn back to John, 1 John chapter 4. We already read verse 8, so let's read verses 9 and 10 now, where John supports his statement that God is love. 1 John 4, 9, it says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love for us is made manifest. It's made as clear as it can be 
through Jesus' death on the cross. That's what John's saying here. There's absolutely nothing clearer God could have done to, to show his love to us. There's nothing greater that God could have done. There's nothing more loving that God could have done than what he did, dying on the cross for us. I mean, his dying on the cross, his being the atoning sacrifice for our sins is rock-solid evidence that God loves us, that God loves me, that God loves you. I mean, there are those times, there, there will be in the future, those times where, where we struggle through hardship. We face suffering, and, and the question can come up, God, God, do you, this doesn't feel loving. Do you love me? You know, like Job, we can, we can look at our situation and, maybe, and just not make sense of how a loving God could allow what he did and still love us. And then we can ask the question, God, do you truly love me? In those moments, we have to turn our gaze to the cross because that is the manifest display of God's love. Jesus stripped, beaten, whipped, spat upon, nailed to the cross body is the conclusive proof that God loves you. Even when we might not feel it, we ought to let the reality of that outweigh our feelings. I'm not saying feelings aren't important, but feelings can deceive and can mislead. And we don't feel like we're loved by God. We can look at the cross and say, but I am. I am loved by God. That's the display of it. You know, the word of God pleads us to consider this reality. We, we read these words here in 1 John chapter 4. Listen to these other verses. It's the exact same message of God's love that's being proclaimed. And, and these are some famous verses. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And John, again, in 1 John chapter 3, by this we know love, that he lay down his life for us. You know, you think about the lyrics to, uh, to the well-known song, Jesus Loves Me, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the... Bible tells me so. This is what the Bible is saying. <laughs> when, the, when we say the Bible tells me so, this is what the Bible tells us. Over and over again, God's love is made clear in his sacrificial death on the cross. It's as clear as it could possibly be. You know, most, most of us probably learned that song when we were young children, didn't we? Jesus loves me. Simplicity of the lyrics, the simplicity of the tune, it, it just makes it a good children's song to learn. And it's one thing to sing it when you're a young child, you haven't yet probably faced trial and hardship. 
doesn't, doesn't affect the reality of the message. It's just probably easier to sing and believe in that stage of life, you know? But what about where we find ourselves right now? That's the question. Does Jesus still love me now? Does Jesus love me when I've lost my job? Does Jesus love me when my friend turns their back on me? Does Jesus love me after I've sinned? Does Jesus love me when this physical pain just won't go away? Does Jesus still love me in the midst of my addiction? Does, does Jesus still love me as I, as I look at that empty chair on the other side of the dinner table? I mean, whatever the situation is, I mean, we know it, right? In those moments, it's a little harder maybe to sing the song, much less believe the lyrics, Jesus loves me, this I know. <clears throat> Our emotions can deceive us. Our doubts can, can mislead us in those, in those moments. We may even have people in our lives calling God's love into question. We've got to know this morning that God's love is not as uncertain as this little he loves me, he loves me not game. All right, God is love. If you were to play the game, it's he loves me, he loves me, he loves me. That, that'd be the right way. <laughs> to play the game with God's love. He is love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. <clears throat> and that love is made manifest through Jesus' death on the cross. It's made as clear as it could be. So, so what was true when John first wrote the words is true today and, and will always be true. No matter where you or I find ourselves, in our lives, no matter what situation we're in the midst of, it will remain true that God is love. And his love is clearly seen through his only son <clears throat> sent into this world and who died upon the cross. So the question is, do we believe that this morning? Will we hold on to that? Will we listen to the overwhelming message of the entire Bible and hear that being proclaimed to us, that God loves us. Let's stand together. Let's come before him. We're going to end singing songs about God's love. I think it's really the only way to respond to what we've been talking about. But let's humbly come before him in prayer and give him thanks as well. Father, we praise you. There can be those times in our lives where we just don't always feel loved. We don't feel your love maybe how we want to or in the specific way that we want to. God, but your, your words to us, your message through your word is, is, is quite clear. There's nothing else you could do to show us your love than what you've already done. Died on the cross for me, for each of us here. God, I could, I could try to argue and push back against that all I want, but the reality is you love me. 
And so I thank you that, that it's not just that your love is real, but that it also has been clearly shown to us. I thank you that we can have that confidence. We can walk through every moment of life knowing that we are loved by you. It's truly incredible. God, it is, it is wonderful to be loved by you. And I think we're only discovering more and more, hopefully each day, just how wonderful it is. God, as we, as we come to you, as we, as we worship you through singing, make these words the response of our heart. As we proclaim your love through different songs that have been written. God, we worship you. We give you the praise that you most definitely deserve because you are love and your love is extended toward us. God, we praise you this morning. We pray all this in your name. Amen.